Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivikana. Yo soy Cristiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, in a break from our normal format, we bring you the third in a special series of episodes looking at the future of sustainable transport and its importance in reaching the global target of net zero by 2050. Twenty twenty was a year like no other in living memory, with a pandemic that killed more than one and a half million people, decimated economies, and destroyed livelihoods. But it also demonstrated the power of collective action and the ability of people to rapidly change their behaviour for the common good. The twenty twenties are a decisive decade. As we enter a new year, that same resolve needs to be applied to climate change and the sectors in most urgent need of decarbonisation. Take a look around you. Wherever you may be listening right now, I can guarantee you'll be within touching distance of something that has been transported by sea. Shipping has been the backbone of global economies for thousands of years and today accounts for 90% of world trade. Although considered the most efficient method of transport in terms of cost, it's also responsible for 2% to 3% of global emissions, which, if it were a country, would put it on par with Germany the world's sixth biggest emitter. The challenge to decarbonize shipping is huge. With around 60,000 vessels currently in operation, emissions are expected to be 50% higher in 2050 than in 2018. So how to turn this ship around? We speak to scientists, CEOs, politicians and pioneers committed to charting a course to a more sustainable shipping future. Thanks for being here. This episode of the podcast is brought to us by our very special sponsor. Who is that, Paul? Neste. Neste. We're so grateful to Neste, aren't we? What do they do? Do you, do you think they could be in the business of fighting climate change? I'm sure they're in the business of fighting climate change. I don't think they'd be sponsors of our show if they weren't. They probably wouldn't be. And do you think that they produce renewable fuels or do you think they invest in circular solutions? I wouldn't be at all surprised if they did both. Do you think they do? That would be very impressive. I really, they did both. I, genuinely, I do. Okay. And which country do you think they're from? Well, I think they're from Finland but I wouldn't be at all surprised if their products went all around the world. They probably do, don't they? We're very grateful to them. Thank you, Neste. Thank you. So, Christiana, you have a very personal connection to this subject. Take us back to 2018, if you will, and your involvement in talks at the International Maritime Organization, the UN agency responsible for regulating shipping. Well, you see, although I had already finished my term at the Climate Change Convention in 2016, I was involved at the IMO headquartered in London in 2018 supporting those government representatives who were working for an ambitious target of emission reductions from the shipping industry, not covered by the Climate Change Convention. It was clearly not easy, but in the end, the IMO adopted a so-called initial strategy to start the industry on the path toward decarbonization. That initial ambition had to be reviewed and hopefully increased in 2020. So you can imagine how disappointed I am that the revision of the IMO 
is actually a step back from the initial strategy. It is not a step forward. It is a step back. And it does not take the industry anywhere close to the Paris Agreement targets. Now, honestly, there's no question that getting an ambitious consensus on emission reductions from shipping presents a huge political challenge, no doubt. But frankly, it's also a technology transformation challenge. So let's first talk about the the chicken and the egg problem. Jules Kortenhurst is the CEO of the Rocky Mountain Institute and a leading expert on global energy issues and climate change. We're going to have to move shipping away from burning that nasty stuff called marine diesel. It is the absolute grub hub at the bottom of the barrel. It's the the, the, the nastiest stuff that you can burn. And, and we need to move away from burning that uh, product to clean fuels of the future. Fuels that do not bring new greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So most likely that is something that is derived from clean electricity. Uh, So then we're talking about hydrogen from electrolysis or because hydrogen is not that easy to store and move around, uh, potentially uh, green ammonia where ammonia is produced from uh, green hydrogen uh, and is actually suitable for burning in a ship's engine. But ships travel all around the world Imports, you need infrastructure to fuel them. You need the plants to produce that fuel. Those plants will only get built if they know that there is demand. That demand will only emerge when the price of the fuel is low enough. And that gets us to the chicken and the egg problem. Right now, there are no ships around that can sail on hydrogen or on green ammonia. There are no ports that can bunker those fuels. And there are no producers that make that fuel Uh, So who's going to take the next step forward? And for that, we have to bring the industry together. But when that industry involves an incredibly complex network of players, shipbuilders, engineers, energy suppliers, financiers, ports and charters, what's the way out of the chicken and egg dilemma? I think certainly there are some policy instruments that can help. But I think there's an important role also for creating shared commitments, a understanding of what the future will look like, and everybody saying, yeah, I'm signing up to this. If the 20 largest ports in the world and the biggest builders of ship engines and the suppliers of clean energy and some of the largest shipping companies all said, okay, so what we are saying is we're going to do this over the next 10 years. And we know we can then sell the capacity of those clean burning ships more easily to charterers and, sh- and companies that need to ship goods because it's clean and therefore it attracts a small premium price. And that obviously would move the whole industry forward. And you see time and again that it is individual companies and individual leaders within those companies that take charge and say, let's do this. Shout out to Maersk, the Danish shipping company that was at the forefront of saying, we need to have a more ambitious future and a bolder outlook. 
We will be speaking to Maersk shortly, but first, we also need to acknowledge time is running out. Research carried out by the UK's Tyndall Centre for Climate Change at the University of Manchester shows that new efficient ships alone won't be enough to curb shipping's environmental damage. Given the typical lifespan of a modern ship is anywhere between 25 to 30 years, steps need to be taken today to reduce emissions from existing fleets. James Mason is one of the report authors. Some of the research that we've done here at the Tyndall Centre has actually shown that it's the short-term reductions that are vital for us to meet our Paris Agreement goals. Now, that's because once we emit carbon dioxide, it actually remains in the atmosphere for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So it it actually builds up. Um, And right now, our emissions are high, so we need to cut them, you know, in the short term to stop them from building up. And, you know, there are lots of options available to ships now to do this. Uh, One that my research looks at in particular is something called wind propulsion, which uh, I think is quite ironic because it's actually fitting sails back on ships. Um, I look at combining that specifically with something called uh, voyage optimization, which acts as like a sat-nav, where it guides the sailing ships to areas of ocean with beneficial winds to uh, further increase the carbon reductions that these ships can get. Um, There are other things such as Uh, propeller design improvements, reducing the resistance of ships uh, through something called air lubrication, which is really interesting because they actually pump, uh, continuously pump air bubbles underneath the ship's hull to reduce the resistance uh, of the ship's hull in the the water. And then there's shore power as well, uh, where ships actually plug in and use electricity when they're in ports to to reduce the carbon emissions because it's more efficient than burning fuel. The the options depend on the type of ship. For example, for smaller ships, electricity might be more applicable, whereas the battery technology might you know just isn't there yet for these larger ships. Um, and then one thing that I think is really important to to point out is that slowing down can actually really help to save fuel. Uh, some of my research has shown that slowing down by just twenty percent can save uh, a quarter of of fuel for some ships. In the long term, these low carbon options with alternative fuels are the way forward. But right now, in the short term, there are plenty of options out there for ships. However, while the cost of fossil fuels remains so low. There is no immediate economic incentive to use low-carbon alternatives. Biofuels are used by some vessels but aren't considered viable in the long term. Tyndall Center researcher and report co-author Simon Bullock. One problem that shipping and aviation both face, which isn't the case in road transport, is that their fuels don't pay any tax um, by international convention. So it's very hard for new fuels like ammonia or hydrogen to compete with diesel. So diesel's had decades of subsidy. Uh, It still doesn't pay any tax. And progress on pricing shipping fuels has uh, been historically desperately slow. For the first time in the last year, we've we've seen two serious proposals to to tax marine fuel, one from the International Chamber of Shipping at $2 a tonne, and another from Trafigura, the, the big charterers, for a tax of $200 a tonne, so a big range there. But even the small tax would raise £5 billion for R&D on low-carbon fuels, so it, it's, not, um, it's not a minor thing. But the, this area of carbon fuel pricing wasn't taken forward at the November IMO meeting. There is a lot of inertia and delay and um, 
difficulty in moving things forward. It's not to say that the IMO um, doesn't get things done. The, the air pollution targets they set um, recently uh, have been very effective. Um, but on climate change and carbon pricing, it, there's still quite a long way to go. Diane Gilping, founder and CEO of Smart Green Shipping, is also seeing a real demand for change in the industry. She is applying her experience in Formula One and yacht racing to smart shipping solutions. The key to the work that we're doing here is that the climate emergency is, is really the mother of all races. And I think we need to bring the racing mindset to bear on how we approach the challenge. And I think um, what I thought I could bring to this space was a new mindset, which is really around, um, you know, the shipping industry is determined to, to to frame itself as hard to decarbonize, And I don't think that that's necessarily true. And I think if we approach it in the kind of way that we would approach a, a Formula One season, which is that every race, you're going to get better and better and better, then we approach this challenge in exactly the same way. We bring together a team of experts from different areas of technology, software, management, insurance, uh, all elements of the system to solve a particular problem. And so that seemed to me like a good way to um, approach the decarbonisation of shipping problem. And so we set up Smart Green Shipping. The problem that we have with shipping is that we need to start rapidly decarbonising it. And so we've developed a 40 metre high automated intelligent wing sail that can save up to 25% fuel when retrofitted onto existing ships. And, and that's enabled by a lot of digital science that's um, supported by the European Space Agency, for example. And so we can predict the amount of wind that will be available. We can optimise the power call-off um, combination between the wing sails and the engine. And then once we've installed those, which we hope to be doing within a year, then we start to learn from the data that we're generating, from the experiences that we uh, are having through the retrofit models and through the retrofit in real life. And we can start to improve the, the, the retrofit technology, but we can also start to think about how do we build a 100% renewable new build. And because the wings are made from aluminium and steel, we will begin trialling uh, circular economy systems. So how do we use that material um, in, a, in a smarter way? We reuse it. We have a better residual value from the technology so we can then start to build new economic systems. So the ultimate goal for our team is that by 2030, we will have a 100% renewable ship in the water. And that is 100% power is renewable, but it's also 100% renewable materials and resources embedded in the build. Who would have thought that tried and tested method of wind power and sail would be brought back into play to reduce emissions and save millions in fuel costs? So what is the uptake for these new technologies? Everybody we've talked to wants to, wants to trial the technology. They, they, you know, it's a really popular solution. People see the sense in it, um, but there's no logical way of demonstrating the technology, by which I mean logical in the current economic paradigm, because uh, the cargo owners want to use ships that are fitted with wind devices. The ship owners would like to fit the wind devices, but they don't want to be the first, and that's completely understandable. The finance industry can't finance it until it's proven technology, and you can't prove it until it's financed. And so we kind of go round and round this circle. And it, it's a real 
obstacle and, uh, and frustration for, for pretty much everybody that we talk to. You know, we talk to venture capitalists, we talk to renewable energy investors, and they are only really realising the opportunities that are emerging from the from the urgent need to decarbonise shipping. And that is um, a huge commercial opportunity for investors. So what we're doing is working again through our collaboration to put together a, a sort of a patchwork financing programme where there's a bit of government funding and there's some very uh, brave, risk-tolerant financial investors who love the concept of seeing uh, 21st century wing sales deployed at, at, you know, in, the, in the modern shipping fleet. But given the modern shipping fleet is so diverse with vessel types as varying as a 20-meter tugboat to 240-meter supertankers and the so-called bunkers, which are the ships that carry the fuel itself. Where does Diane see this type of technology being scaled? Our best target market at the moment is, is bulkers and tankers. And there are, you know, 10,000 of those available that we could start retrofitting now. And we think that if we if we retrofitted all of those ships that could be retrofitted with wind, we'd be saving about 1% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So get on with it, do it now. The thing that happens with innovation is that you do one thing and then someone else goes, oh, well, we could do it better than that. Why don't we do it on one of these? And that's what you need to be triggering. We need to be triggering that kind of arms race. And that's... Um, so we don't know what the future looks like. It never looks quite like what we thought it would. Now, back to Maersk, a longtime champion of more fuel-efficient vessels, but also looking ahead to an even more sustainable future. In 2018, the world's largest shipping company stated its ambition to become carbon neutral by 2050, a first for the industry at the time. I spoke to its CEO, CERN Scope. We have worked on our fuel consumption and efficient fuel efficiency diligently for for more than a, a decade. But by by the middle of uh, you know in 2015, 2016, we started to realize that uh, you know that uh, efficiency was not really going to solve the problem. Uh, then we actually decided to go ahead and make the bold statement that we wanted to be carbon neutral. The initial reaction was, uh, you know, how can you make such a, such a target, such a, such a goal in 2050 if you don't know how to get there? <laughs> but but I, I think, that, I mean, that's, that's not the point. If we are not willing to put a, a stick in the ground, then we are for sure never going to achieve uh, achieve anything. So, uh, so we put the stick in the ground and, uh, you know, this year in 2020, uh, the, the ship owning companies in our own country in Denmark has actually all signed up to this uh, this target of 2050, and and we're we're starting to see also other places uh, in in the world and in our in in our particular segment of shipping, which is container shipping. Of course, our customers are all of the if you will the big brands, the big retailers of the world, and 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 of course they have their own agenda. Uh, here and they are also increasing pressure on our industry to actually uh, come up with solutions for how to decarbonize, uh, help them decarbonize their their global supply chains. So I think that that's the movement, we, the trend we see today, and 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 more and more uh, get involved. And having committed to ditching diesel and becoming carbon neutral by 2050, 
How does Soren see his container ships being fueled in the future? We have identified a couple of, of pathways on fuel. One is uh, ammonia and, and another one is uh, alcohols. And those two fuels are both fuels that can be produced uh, with a starting source of, uh, of, of, of green energy. Both of those uh, fuel types have have you know special issues one is uh, one is uh, you know alcohol the flame point is very low so so uh, so there's a safety issue there the other is ammonia it's toxic so of course there's also a safety issue there uh, but we believe we can solve the, those problems in two to three years it will still be a combustion engine as we know it today uh, which is good because it means there's a chance we can we can even retrofit existing uh, ships with new pistons and and and, and so on and then Three years from now, we expect to buy the first order, if you will, the first series of maybe small container ships that we can operate in, in, a, in a defined geographical area. Then we can go out and make supply contracts with people that can provide, uh, whether it's ammonia or alcohol, methanol and ethanol, and, and we can fuel the ships uh, that way, get the experience you know, what, how it works operationally or how to make sure the safety works. And then we can be ready to start ordering, um, you know, large ships towards the end of this decade. That, that's the pathway that we see. We have to get this done by 2030 because we have, a ship has a, a life expectancy of somewhere between 20 and 25 years. So we need to start replacing ships by 2030 in order to be ready at 2050. Therein lies the titanic challenge. In order to deliver on ambitious climate targets, zero-emission vessels need to enter the fleet by 2030, leaving less than a decade to develop the new marine fuels, technologies, and infrastructure required. We have to do a lot of work ourselves to find the solution. Uh, I have no ambition of becoming a fuel supplier. That's not part of our strategy. Uh, but but it's not like we are experiencing that uh, there are a lot of fuel suppliers out there coming to us, knocking on the door and saying, look, you should use this fuel five years from now or 10 years uh, from now. We're actually working on it ourselves uh, so that we can define the fuel we want. And then hopefully we can help create a market at that at that time. And now having committed billions of dollars of investment to this journey into a zero-carbon future, what will it take to bring others on board? I think the IMO system is what we need. Uh, I, I, I'm, if you will, I'm outraged about the, the lack of ambition level from, the, from some member countries. But I also think that they will be proven wrong and that the world will will uh, continue to push in this direction. Uh, one of the things that I do is that I'm a member of the European version of the roundtable of industry. 55 largest companies in Europe, all kinds of industries. I mean, every CEO there have some kind of decarbonization plan. More than 80% already committed to be uh, carbon neutral 2050 or before. Uh, and, and, you know, when all of these companies, huge companies, they, they uh, set out to do something, then I'm actually pretty confident that this is going to move the ball in the next decade. Another company also moving the ball forward is Stenaline, one of the world's largest ferry operators. 
Paul spoke to Head of Sustainability Eric Lumenhaupt about why decarbonization is essential to business. I think it's hugely important for us as an industry because particularly in, in my segment, which is uh, short sea shipping, uh, you know, we are often working with road transportation or rail, but we're also competing with them in, in some areas. So for us, we have to make sure that shipping is still the, the sort of the green leg in a chain of transportation. And once we're, we're not, and you know, other, other segments would have uh, surpassed us, then that would be uh, not only bad for business or, or bad for the planet. I mean, that would be bad for, for both. So um, it's really an existential uh, you know, question for us. One huge challenge in our industry is that you know, we're, we have 50,000 merchant ships on the water, roughly, in, in the world. They are tailor-made. Almost each and every one is built by a yard on a specific specification from an owner. We don't have any Airbus or Boeing in our industry. Uh, we don't have the long series of designs and so on. So to a very large extent, ships are, are quite individual. And, and that's also why also the solutions in, in some areas has to be sort of tailor-made. Recognizing that climate change poses an existential threat to business, Stenaline started trialing some of these solutions decades ago. I think it was in 1990 we had our first uh, shore connection to one of the ships uh, here in Gothenburg in, in, uh, in our home port, so to say. Um, and the next step has been to sort of gradually expand that. Today we have 14 ships which are connected on onshore power supply. In 2018, we did our first battery hybrid installment, uh, which is basically a container uh, with one megawatt hours of batteries on board, which, uh, which is installed on, on one ship. And that electricity powers the auxiliary engines when she is maneuvering in port. And it also takes care of you know, electricity and uh, um, heating and, and cooling and so on uh, when the ship is, is uh, in service. Now that's the step one. The, the next step will be to have a bigger battery package, which will actually take the ship and supplement a main engine to take her out of the port and into the open water. And then you switch on a main engine of, of whether it's diesel, methanol, LNG, uh, fuel cells, and then you do the same thing in the in the other port when when you get closer to shore. And that we believe is I don't know. It could be two three years out. The third step is the fully electric ship. Our ambition is to have a, actually two fully electric ships on the water by 2030. And this will be a, by far the biggest battery installation as of yet. But of course, things are moving fast in our industry. But we're very excited about this. And we call this the Stena Electra project, um, which, which will be a, a service between Sweden and Denmark, um, as the intention is. Also, part of this electrification journey that we're on is also ensuring that you have the right amount of electricity available at the right time. So because a fully electric ship will, will need a large effect and, and the grid can sometimes be a challenge there. So what we're also looking into together with, with a couple of partners is whether we can use old road transportation batteries 
and use them as power banks on the quayside. And that could be for charging a ship, it could be for charging trucks or, or other vehicles, etc. But that they would have a second life as a, a large-scale power bank. In that case, you could also use take electricity out of the grid when it's cheaper and available and, and use it when you need it uh, coming in. The ports are extremely important here. Uh, because it takes two to tango and you need the infrastructure in place in port and you need it on the ship. So this is uh, by all means a collaboration with the ports to have sufficient infrastructure. Indeed, the irony of the shipping industry is that a key part of the decarbonization effort will have to take place not on the waters but on land at the ports. Efforts have already been made with the introduction of lower sulfur fuels to reduce toxic pollution, which kills tens of thousands of people every year. But how to meet the myriad needs of a changing industry is now the burning question. Someone has to to do the first uh, to to make the first step, and uh, and as a leading port, I consider this our mission. Jacques van der Meren is the CEO of the port of Antwerp, the second largest port in Europe and the biggest economic engine of Belgium. Uh, and when it comes to uh, uh, sustainability and uh, uh, climate uh, transition and the climate goals and the COP, that's clear that uh, we are part of the problem uh, here in Antwerp. Uh, we emit out of the 120 million tons of CO2 for the country of Belgium, 18 million tons uh, are emitted here in, in Antwerp. So we are clearly part of, uh, of the problem, but we want to become uh, part of the solution. Antwerp and Rotterdam are taking this, uh, this, uh, this challenge uh, by bringing all the community together and to, to bring some, some concrete building blocks uh, already today. One uh, small, small uh, example is, uh, for instance, the first uh, hydrogen tuck boat in the world is uh, currently uh, built somewhere in Spain and uh, will arrive here in the port of Antwerp end of next year, hopefully. And that will be the first one. Uh, hopefully of a very large uh, fleet in uh, in the in the future but we took the risk of building the first one and uh, probably it will be the most expensive one <laughs> in the whole history of uh, hydrogen tugboats that is not the only risk Jacques and other port managers will have to take one of the main dilemmas is investing in the infrastructure to fuel an industry which is still researching what that fuel will be. It takes years before you can build a new infrastructure, like pipelines. So we have to start now to be ready uh, in 2025 and, and certainly in, 20, in 2030. So we have to start without having all the, the guarantees that the, the shipping industry will follow. But if we wait to have them all aligned on one uh, alternative solution, which I not believe is, is the solution. It will be uh, a diverse uh, approach with many uh, options and many alternatives, which will make our life on land uh, much more complicated because we will have to invest in lots of different uh, infrastructure. But that, that's, uh, I'm afraid, the way it will, it will happen. So we will have to do the first move. 
we did the acquisition of a pipeline company, um, having already 750 kilometers of pipelines. But the, the idea is to have the expertise of building uh, pipelines so that we are ready now to build pipelines for CO2 and methanol, ammonia, uh, uh, hydrogen between all ports between the port of Antwerp and Zeebrugge, but probably also between the port of uh, uh, Antwerp and Rotterdam, so that we can, uh, in this part of the world, we can uh, become the place where we will have the green ports of, uh, of the future. So the message from some key industry leaders is clear. They're willing to commit to and invest in a decarbonized future for shipping with or without the support of the global shipping community. And they're not the only ones forging ahead. We do not have all the answers yet. Today is the start of a journey. But this is Europe's man on the moon moment. That's Ursula von der Leyen president of the European Commission speaking in 2019 at the launch of the European Green Deal, whose aim is to make Europe the first carbon neutral continent by 2050. A cornerstone of that policy is the emissions trading scheme, a cap and trade system whereby companies receive or buy emission allowances. Currently, this does not include shipping emissions, but last year, the European Parliament voted in favor of its inclusion. Paul spoke to Jutta Paulus, a member of the European Parliament who is at the forefront of the campaign to get the proposal passed. Having a taxation on bunker fuel would do the trick, but this is unfortunately not possible because we would need all neighboring states coming on this blanket with us. And so um, taxing or having shipping, buying emission certificates is the second best option. What we are planning is we will not go for a single company or a single flag state or a single cargo. We are saying every ship over 5,000 tons entering an EU or rather EEA, European Economical Area, which also comprises Norway, for example, will have to buy these certificates. And if those ships will be obliged to buy those certificates, we can raise a lot of money, which we can use either for own resources for the EU or, which is what Parliament is proposing, Parliament is saying, take half of the revenues from the auctioning of the certificates and give them into an ocean fund and use this ocean fund to help decarbonize shipping. Because at the moment, bunker fuel is incredibly cheap. I don't think that the IMO is the place where we should wait for ambitious measures. And that's because it is um, constituted from all member states, all on UN level, it's not only the majority of the states that have to agree, but also the majority of the cargo carried. And there we have the five big flag states, which are actually 
having most of the ships under their flags. And they're not represented at the IMO by their ministers, but by the registration companies. So you have basically industry negotiating with industry. And no wonder that nothing happens. Jutta is confident the EU's proposal could help accelerate change at the global level. Given, she says, the EU has been able to successfully influence IMO policy in the past. The IMO said um, at the beginning of, of the century, they said, well, we might think about doing something about emission reduction on the global level too. And then they started thinking, they thought for a very long time. And at the end of the day, they said, we have some proposals here and we might decide in 2020 whether we'll, we will adopt any measures in 2023. And it took quite a few IMO meetings until EU and its member states found out that IMO will never come forward with anything ambitious. And so um, the EU decided to at least start counting emissions on their own, because before there was no accounting even. And um, the EU um, came up with the MRV database, which uh, came into force in 2018. But she admits there wasn't much appetite for change on show at the latest IMO talks in November of last year. I'm in the delegation for the IMO. So I, the EU has only an observer status there. So we are not allowed to talk, but we're allowed to listen. And it was very sobering. It was really very sobering. Um, I'm not allowed to share any any secret things because it is not a public a public meeting but there were several states that were well i'd say close of climate denial so um it that's serious and it's i think it's far too late to be further waiting for the imo They have had their turn. They could have done something 20 years ago, which they didn't. But the proposal of a region moving on its own hasn't been welcomed by many in the global shipping industry. I'm totally opposed to regional regulation for shipping. It doesn't work. We're talking about a global industry that operates globally and we're talking about ships that are engaged in international trade. So they have to move from one regime to another and if the rules are different at both ends of the voyage, that is remarkably complex and actually um, inhibits efficiency. Peter Hinchliff is the former Secretary General of the International Chamber of Shipping which represents national ship owner associations at the IMO. The first thing is that um, shipping is the great uh, hidden industry, the great hidden part of the global supply chain. Nobody understands the importance of the shipping industry and that without shipping, we will simply not be able to function as a, a global trading system. So that, that's part of the problem. The other part of the problem is that the industry is made up of numerous different sectors who operate in completely different ways. There are around about 80,000 merchant ships in the world. Some are tankers, some are container ships, some are cruise ships, um, some are uh, dry bulk carriers. Um, they all have different trading patterns. They work in different ways with their cargo owners and the contractors. So um, 
it just makes it hugely complicated. It is a massively complex system and trying to find a single rule that will meet all of these different requirements is the real challenge. And when you look at uh, the cost of running a ship, by far the majority of the cost is the crew and the fuel. And it is therefore solely in the interest of the ship owner or the ship manager to operate the ship as efficiently as possible. And that is the history of shipping. There's always been this thrust towards efficiency. Um, one of the reasons why we ended up with um, running most ships on heavy fuel oil, which is not a, a, a good fuel from an environmental point of view, was because there was a symbiotic relationship between the refining industry that had this heavy fuel oil as a bottom product, needed to get rid of it, because they had nothing else to do with it, and the shipping industry that could buy it at a cheap price and operate it in the most efficient internal combustion engine, which is a diesel engine, um, and and uh, and therefore we ended up in that place. But it was entirely driven by efficiency. And so the thrust now towards decarbonisation, I see that as merely an evolution of what has always been this drive for efficiency. The transition from sail to steam took a very long time you know people tend to think about it being a moment in time but actually when you're dealing with a ship that has a 30-year time scale or trading time um, nothing happens very quickly the uh, timeline for the IMO interim strategy is 2050 that's the drop dead date and um, I think that actually the industry will have already transformed to certainly low carbon if not completely zero carbon well before 2050 because the market will drive it there's a lot of work going on and it, it all just adds to my optimism that we're on a really good, uh, we're in a good place and we're on the right trajectory. However, some still doubt the shipping industry's commitment to change. Nishan Degnarain is chair of the London School of Economics Ocean Finance Initiative. We've seen investments from the automotive industry. We've seen aviation. We've seen a lot of government funding coming through. There's been almost nothing from the shipping industry. If the shipping industry is serious about change, it needs to invest in the fuels of the future, and it will be at a competitive advantage. Look at Tesla, for example. You know, 10 years ago, you know, people were saying, well, who is this electric vehicle? Who is Elon Musk? And now this summer, Tesla has become the most valuable automotive company in the world, you know, over $200 billion compared to Toyota, $203 billion, right? And so you look at that and say, there will be disruptors in this field. Um, and so how do you get the regulators and the existing incumbents out of the way to allow these disruptors to come through? So there are good actors over there who want to transport uh, goods sustainably, and there are two levers of influence in my mind. The first lever is a um, political lever. So if you've got the US, you've got Europe, you've got possibly the UK, which is obviously not part of Europe, uh, the EU anymore, mm -hmm. um, and then you've got other regions, you know, like Pacific Islands, for example, Indian Ocean Islands, uh, maybe even China, for example, who's made bolder statements on climate than India or Japan. You start to get these regional emission areas, and shipping will have no alternative. If they want to be part of these big trading blocks, they will have to reduce their emissions. Okay, so that's one lever to how we explore regional emission targets. And that's what the, the pressure we can put on ministers of transport around the world mm -hmm. to start doing that. The second is putting pressure on these big um, technology platforms like Amazon, like Google, anywhere that you can buy products from, there should be a carbon labeling. You know, we now know what the calories should look like. We have the ingredients. It is critical for the health of our planet that we need carbon labeling. And that should that should be done instantaneously. There is no excuse why um, you can't put you know 10 or 20 engineers to build a product or a feature within an e-commerce platform within six months or 12 months. 
So it's clear. To drive the innovation required to lessen shipping's impact on climate change, effort and commitment from a diverse group of actors, both inside and outside the industry, is essential. And today, we're already seeing some of that innovation in action. Hello and welcome to this special edition of Tech24. We're aboard Energy Observer. This X-Racing catamaran, powered by hydrogen, is on a six-year voyage around the world and is currently sailing along the French Riviera. Energy Observer is the first ship to sail around the world, powered only by hydrogen, wind and solar. It's the brainchild of a group of French former offshore yacht racers. Louis-Noël VDS is the general manager. You know, we have been um, chasing cups and trophies and, and you know, prize-giving ceremonies. And when we came back home, you know, we understood that at the end of the story, we were just chasing about satisfying our own ego and not chasing something, you know, really important for our children, for, our, you know, our family, our friends, our country. Our... So the idea was to, you know, to use this sponsoring, but to do something else, to do something which is much more relevant for us, for our children, for our family, for, for even for engineers and for all the industry. During its six-year voyage, the Energy Observer is not only showcasing the onboard technology, it's also working with communities on land to help provide new energy solutions. Today they are arriving in Guyana, in South America, because over there there is this big space rocket uh, launching base, you know, for the European uh, community. And, um, you know, the space rocket, they use a big amount of hydrogen. Uh, it's a liquid hydrogen. Most of it is lost. And we are working on, on some solutions to try to recover some of this lost fatal hydrogen, we say, um, to use it for the uh, local power stations and uh, for the communities over there, because Guyana is very specific. You know, there, there are a lot of small villages um, there are many uh, buildings and cities uh, along the uh, coastline, uh, but most of the remote areas are just to totally isolated. And the hydrogen storage solutions are probably a, a good solution for them in the near future. The Energy Observer team is a great example of how a small group of diverse but pioneering minds can come together to overcome exceptional challenges. We think that the only solution for the renewables and for a cleaner future, it is to accept, you know, the the, the, uh, the mix. It it has to be mixed. If Energy Observer is a success today, it's first because we mix some uh, merchant uh, navy officers with some offshore racers with some pure engineers. Um, the work the uh, the boat is working because we mix sun, you know, wind, hydrogen generation. So it's a mix of culture and it's a mix of energies. And we strongly believe that if you mix cultures and energies, you can do whatever you want. And I too believe that collaboration will be key as the shipping industry navigates its way towards a more sustainable and responsible future.
interesting to get the chance this week to dig into these amazing issues. I mean, it's going to be such an underlying trend as to whether we deal with this issue of climate change, whether we reduce our emissions in line with science, whether we get on top of marine transportation and shipping. Christiana, what a journey you've been on. What do you leave those series of conversations with? Well, as I said at the beginning, um, I was so disappointed by the IMO decision. But honestly, after this conversation with everyone in the field, I'm sort of uh, moving toward optimism again, because I remind myself that not everything depends on regulation and that there are many other levers of change. And especially what is very exciting is when CEOs of large companies have the vision and the courage to push forward no matter what. Hmm. I, I, um, I was touched by this idea that there's something going on that's a little bit complicated. Um, you know, shipping is just like a commodity, but I remember being at a fantastic conference of Temasek, the Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund, in 2010, and there was a big commodities expert there who started saying commodities are going to stop being commodities. That, you know, what defines a commodity is it's sort of ubiquitous and the same and homogenized. And that's that's changing now. We're starting to get um, different kinds of commodities and, and particularly basically low carbon or zero carbon commodities. So I think shipping is going to stop being just this blanket thing, A to B. It's going to be low carbon A to B and high carbon A to B. And that allows customer preference, clever marketing, product services, whole systems to change. And that will fuel innovation, I think. And there can be so much innovation with these super complex, super interesting um, things, ships, um, powered by wind entirely until 1784, um, but now uh, able to be powered in a whole bunch of new ways and very exciting time. Every time we've done one of these transport uh, uh, deep dives, you know, whether it's whether it's road vehicles or, or whether it's air, airplanes, we discover that it's just an incredible time of innovation and scientific discovery. It, it is. And, and But honestly, if we don't call this episode, there's something going on that's a little bit complicated, then it's a missed opportunity. <laughs> now, I would also <laughs> say, though, um, I think that it's interesting, isn't it, to look at this dynamic between the pressure of collective action, which seems to really be struggling in the, in the arena of shipping, and individual innovation and the ability to move forward, which seems to be flourishing. Um, where do you, I mean, just sort of, you know, reversing the question for that we usually ask our guests in terms of outrage and optimism. Christiana, you've been delving into these questions. Do you feel outraged about the future of shipping or do you feel optimistic? Well, of course. What do you think? <laughs> what a question. question. Come on, you've what got to have question. a bit of outrage. <laughs> I mean, come on, come on. Do you want to be fired again, Tom? You've been fired a few it's times. Tried a lot recently. <laughs> One no, life but, left. But, but seriously, you know, let, let's think about where the three of us, let alone everyone else, was in their um, assessment of change in shipping five years ago, right? Yeah. Honestly, we thought shipping is a hard to impossible to abate sector, way up there with steel, cement, chemicals, all of those sectors that are going to be impossible to abate. And we were scratching our head like, what on earth are we going to do with that? And as we have heard from all of these stakeholders, it's actually beginning to move, not as an organized sector yet. I think what we're beginning to see is if it were a field, we would see 
little mushrooms popping up here and there. So little mushrooming of solutions. It is not yet a field of promising flowers, but there are little shoots emerging everywhere. And the next step is a normalization of this, which will then take the sector over to over the hump into a decarbonization curve. But the fact that in five years, we have moved from, frankly, impossible to, hmm, maybe this could be possible. That is pretty astonishing. I think the next step on that journey is unstoppable, but that may be just a lesson yeah, from, from impossible yeah. to inevitable. We're not there yeah. yet. Yeah. Okay. We're yeah, not yeah, there yeah. yet, but we are on our <laughs> We're way. We're on our way to unstoppable. Paul? Uh, yes, well, yes, no, no, land ahoy or whatever the appropriate nautical metaphor is. Um, you know, I, I, I think the shipping industry needs to get moving. Are there going to be like drone airships that are like competing with them? You know, there's there's opportunities here for all kinds of disruption, you know, these vacuum trains and all the rest of it. But I, I think shipping's got a great future, but they need to move now. They need to move fast. And once again, huge opportunities for technologists to get together and use all, all that kind of racing yacht stuff. I mean, we know a lot about the ship. We've been in this, we've been in the water for thousands of years, right? But it's time now to completely change the game. And when giant companies like Maersk commit to being kind of net zero by yeah. 2050, you know it can be done. Yeah. He's spending $4 billion a year on fuel. That's a lot. Anyone out there has got an alternative solution? There's $4 billion waiting there for you annually. Yeah, that's an incredible statistic. So thank you so much for coming on this journey with us around the future of sustainable transportation. This is one of our early episodes in 2021, and we will be back with season three of the podcast on the 29th of January. Um, and we will be bringing you a conversation with Johan Rockström, who is a great friend of ours and is an amazing communicator about the science and what we're facing in this most decisive decade that is now a year old. We now have a decisive decade that is only nine years left of it. Yeah. And we've got to get on top of it. Thanks for joining us this week. These conversations have been amazing about the future of transportation. We've got one more to come on urban mobility that will be part of season three. Thanks as ever for listening. We'll see you on the 29th. Bye. So there you go. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. I'm Clay, producer of the podcast. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the third episode in our four-part series on the future of transport. We have one more episode coming your way. And the best way to make sure that you don't miss it is to hit Yes, you guessed it, the subscribe button. It's right there, it's on your phone. And if this is the first episode in this series that you are hearing, I have a link in the show notes of this episode that will take you right to where you can listen to the previous two episodes. Uh, one of them is on the future of fuels and the other is on the future of flight. Go check them out and enjoy. And one more quick mention, we want to make this podcast better. And the way we can do that is to hear directly from you. You know, what you like about the podcast, when you like to listen, what you want us to talk about this next year, and more questions like that. So we've set up a listener survey that we're asking everyone to go and fill out. The link for that is right in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Outrage and Optimism is a Global Optimism production. Our executive producer is Marina Mancilia Germán, and this episode was produced by Clay Carnell and Catherine Hart. But... Who is Global Optimism? It's Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Laura Richardson, Sophie McDonald, Fran Newman, Sarah Thomas, Sharon Johnson, and John Ward. 
Our hosts are Tom Rivet-Karnak, Cristiana Figueres, and the Paul Dickinson. I saw Paul got mentioned as the Paul Dickinson in one of our reviews. It made me very happy. Thank you to our guests this week. Jutta Paulus, Eric Lewinhaut, Jacques Vandermeeren, Peter Hinchliff, Louis Noel Vivies, Diane Gilpin, Simon Bullock, James Mason, Jules Kortenhorst, Nishan Degnerain, and Soren Sko. Thank you to Neste for sponsoring this miniseries, and thank you to their team for working with us to create and share these episodes with our listeners. Thanks to Peter Vanneker, Sana Helstead, Krista Lindell, Elena Lamintausta, and Mina Liang Sormunen. So it takes an incredible amount of work to organize these episodes, uh, coordinating, you know, like loop me in on that email, join the Zoom. What kind of microphone do you have? Where's that briefing again? Hey, call me real quick. What time zone are you in? Are you in lockdown? How's your internet? You know, stuff like that. So thank you to Christina Stover, Annalise Oyen, Ilse Van Roy, Signe Wagner, and Thomas Sondergaard for making Shipped happen. <laughs> there were some good puns in this episode, so, you know, just trying my best to keep up. And keeping you up to date on outrage and optimism in climate is, you know, what we do, but mostly optimism, if you haven't figured that out by now. And the internet is where you can find us, at Global Optimism on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, a very professional website. And of course, if you enjoyed this episode, it makes a difference if you leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. So please keep the amazing reviews coming. We read every single one. Okay, that's a wrap on episode three, The Future of Shipping. Next week is the inauguration of Joseph R. Biden and Kamala Harris as president and vice president of the United States. Very, very exciting. This past week has felt like an eternity, but we are on the cusp of an incredible season of change and collaboration and regeneration. So much excitement coming in the hundred days to follow and beyond. Um, we, we have some really big things planned for this year and we are committed to the journey ahead in season three. So what's the plan? Next week, one more bonus episode. So keep your eyes open for that. And then the following week, season three begins. So fill out that listener survey and we'll see you next week. <laughs>